This is Live Well Talk on Pain Psychology. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital. Pain. It is an all-too-familiar problem and most common reason that a person sees a physician. Unfortunately, treating pain isn't always straightforward. You've likely heard of medical treatment options such as medication, surgery, physical therapy, and more. However, psychological treatments are also an important part of pain management and often isn't on the top of the mind of clinicians nor patients. Here to tell us more about pain psychology and its key role in pain management is Dr. Benjamin Tallman, licensed psychologist for St. Luke's Hospital Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department. Welcome. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate being here. To start it off, let's, let's talk about acute and chronic pain and how you see those two in relation to pain psychology. And, sure. then, and then we'll go into what is pain psychology sure. in there. So. Uh, a lot of acute pain we deal with on the inpatient basis and using more techniques like self-regulation exercises, things like guided imagery, um, clinical hypnosis to manage some of those acute symptoms. Whereas chronic pain is a much different animal. So there are many different what we consider biopsychosocial factors that can impact pain. So relationship patterns, how we think, our thinking patterns, behavioral patterns, and any number of things that can influence and impact pain. So when we think about chronic pain, we're really looking at a multitude of factors that could be impacting uh, somebody's experience of pain. So it's really, it's really quite a bit different from acute pain. And a, and a patient could have acute and chronic pain. Absolutely. I mean, they might have chronic debility, debil- debilitating pain, and then have a broken hip uh, on top of that. Um, so how, let's just talk about the pain psychology program. I know you've started it, and you should be proud of that. I, I'm certainly proud of your accomplishments. But tell us just Give us the basic structure of the program, how it works up on uh, PM&R uh, and uh, throughout the hospital. Yeah, so patients are initially referred from their provider, um, in many cases a primary care provider, but essentially any provider could re- refer a patient to us with any type of pain-related concern. So, and we don't, uh, we don't turn anybody away. They can have any different types of pain, musculoskeletal pain, they can have neuropathic pain, and a variety of pain conditions, whether it's fibromyalgia to arthritis, Patients uh, first come to what we call our pain empowerment group. This is a, a two-hour group that really provides information about what pain psychology is. We, again, give them information about the biopsychosocial model, um, other factors that are influencing their pain, and then other uh, cognitive behavioral techniques that they can use to manage their pain. So it's really an introduction, getting folks excited, but also giving some information uh, about pain psychology. As most patients have never heard of pain psychology, oftentimes when patients are referred to our program, I think there's tremendous stigma still with um, patients going to a psychologist. So initially they think, we're gonna say that their pain is all in their head. We never challenge anybody's pain. Um, If somebody's coming to our program, we certainly believe that they're in pain and we wanna help them become more functional. That's really the goal of our program Certainly, we'd love to see uh, reduced pain levels, but our goal is really to increase functioning, increase independence, and get people doing things you know, that they haven't done for a very long time. Oftentimes, people with chronic pain concerns get away from things that are enjoyable. They stop going to you know, their granddaughter or grandson's basketball game. They stop engaging with other activities in life that they enjoy. They're not hanging out with friends or family members. So we can look at and help people understand how to take back control of their life. So folks come to an initial uh, two-hour pain empowerment group. 
And after they've made it through that group, if they're interested, then they really get into the meat of the program, which is an eight-session cognitive behavioral therapy group for patients with pain. Each group uh, lasts uh, an hour and a half, so over a two-month period, and patients learn a number of different types of skills related to pain management, how thinking patterns influence pain, how behavioral patterns influence pain, and then a whole range of different types of self-regulation exercises, some of which I've already mentioned, clinical hypnosis, biofeedback, and even virtual reality for pain management. So once patients get through that cognitive behavioral therapy group and they graduate, you know, we recognize that people still may need some additional support. So they're then eligible for a support group for up to a year. We call this our monthly maintenance group. So not everybody needs support um, each month. So we might have somebody come one month and then maybe they don't come for three or four months. Uh, but it's still a way that they can hone their skills, refresh their skills, and then tell success stories. Yeah, you talked about the stigma of psychology. I really think to some level we've worked very hard on reducing the stigma of mental health, and now we've replaced that too with a stigma attached to chronic pain and chronic opioid use. It, it's interesting how those two have almost flipped as far as something that labels a patient that they, they not an enjoyable label. It can be, and it starts with really some just intrinsic bias prior to seeing those patients, which that I have to redirect myself when mm -hmm. I'm, I'm dealing with those patients because no, nobody wants to be chronic pain patient with chronic opioids, period. They just, they don't. Nope. And uh, we can talk about the opioid epidemic and the fact that you know, pain used to be the fifth vital sign. We're, as healthcare providers, uh, we're responsible for a significant portion of the opioid epidemic. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's been lots in the news about the opioid epidemic. And really, I think it stems from, you know, our culture and how we help people manage their health. You know, typically patients come to their physician and they're looking for ways to be able to manage their pain, if that's what it is, or their acute illness. And historically, we've relied on usually biomedical interventions, uh, medications. And you know, our, our culture has gotten accustomed to going to providers, looking for medications to be able to manage symptoms. Um, so it's a very reactionary process. We, you know, we typically wait till people are sick to get them healthy instead of the opposite, which is how can we be proactive, uh, give patients a set of skills or techniques that they can use to manage their health ahead of time. So, um, you know, we could you know, mitigate some of the, the negative health things that might come up before they arise. I think the same thing is with, with pain as well. Correct. Uh, I also have, as you know, you've heard me say this, nobody goes to rehab halfway to rock bottom. You know, it, once, once it's broken is when people look for a solution and not preventing it from breaking. That's just, that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. and that, that will not change. I think we need to have some clarity in, or some clarification. The goal of the pain psychology program is not to get people off opioids. It is to improve their life, correct? That is correct. You know, we're, as a licensed psychologist, I don't prescribe medications. Um, I leave that up to my physician colleagues. And certainly there's a lot of patients that come to our program and they want to get off those medications because of some of the, the negative side effects. But no, the goal is not to, to come to our program to get off medications. You know, quite frankly, the goal is not even to reduce pain. Now, many people that do come to our program, once they've learned some of these skills, they're using some of the cognitive behavioral interventions, their pain levels do decrease, 
But what we really see are these peripheral effects of our program. You know, when we look over, I just did the out, an outcomes report for the last 18 months of patients that went through our cognitive behavioral therapy group. We see a nice 29% decrease in depressive symptoms, 27% decrease in anxiety symptoms. I think one of the ones that's most impressive is patients are reporting a significant improvement in their functional ability, their day-to-day things. They're moving more, they're getting out and about. And we, we see some improvement in pain-related scores, but again, we're seeing the big improvements in function. That's really the goal of the program. Um, so sometimes we have to educate folks. You know, ideally, if I could take patients' pain away, I absolutely would. But many times that's not realistic. If somebody's had pain for chronic pain for 15 or 20 years and they've had several failed surgeries and they've done other things, the likelihood of us taking their pain away uh, is pretty small. So, you know, a a realistic goal uh, might be, you know, reduce, maybe reducing their pain, but it might be increasing function. So I think we have a tendency as a medical culture to really focus on treating symptoms, um, which is good. In the case of chronic pain, that can be difficult. Whereas if our focus says if we increase function, uh, people have better outcomes. And again, we've really seen that from the good outcomes of our, our program. We haven't had anybody yet in the last 18 months that's gone through our program, that's completed it, and hasn't had some type of positive indicator on a health-related quality of life measure. So, you know, we're, uh, as a, I'm also a research scientist, so, you know, we look at the data. We want to make sure that uh, what we're doing is actually working. And uh, so far, people are, are getting better from an anxiety, depressive stamp and depression standpoint, but also becoming better from a functional standpoint. So we're very pleased with our outcomes. So what we're doing is working. I think uh, people listening, like myself, can understand biofeedback and self-hypnosis and redirection therapy. Virtual reality, how does that play into it? Yeah. I mean, that's something new and phenomenon, new phenomenon. And... Um, just how, how does that work? What are the mechanics of that? Yeah, we're, we're really excited. We, we're starting a virtual reality program at St. Luke's and really one of the first uh, in the area. We have some good research to suggest that virtual reality can work really well for acute pain, pain during dressing changes, but also chronic pain. We have an idea about the mechanisms of what might be happening uh, for virtual reality to, to work. Although there's still a little bit of the research, we still need more well-designed research studies. But the school of thought is that, you know, you, you experience, you feel pain in your elbow. We feel pain in our knee and our lower back or wherever it might be in our body. Pain is all processed in the brain. We have different regions of the brain that process the emotional part of pain. We have regions of the brain that process the type of pain we experience, whether it's burning, stabbing, shooting, prickling, tingling, etc. Areas of the brain that tell us to do something about the pain. So we think virtual reality kind of quiets down those areas of the brain that experience the effective component or the physical component of pain and help the other areas of the brain that kind of take your uh, attention away from those areas. So when you look at some of the research studies that look at, say, distraction in general, watching television uh, as a control and a group of subjects might get virtual reality, the patients that have virtual reality have lower pain levels. So there is some type of analgesic effect that's happening. And again, we, we think it's, you know, when somebody has virtual reality on, they're fully immersed uh, in, their, in a virtual world, whether they're on the beach or they're engaged in some type of stimulating game, the areas of the brain that are processing pain are kind of quieted down. 
And so far, uh, we're, we're actually getting ready to roll out our virtual reality program uh, on 6 West at St. Luke's. We've been training nurses actually this past week to be able to administer virtual reality uh, headsets. And then we'll roll out the, our program hospital-wide here probably in the next three months. So we're really excited to uh, roll out a very new technology. Um, patients really like it. Our staff really like to use the headsets. And I think it's going to have a very nice benefit. Uh, I think one of the biggest things with using virtual reality and these types of interventions is that they give patients more control over their health, right? So instead of relying on somebody else, you know, as a, as a psychologist, I really want to empower patients. I really want to give them skills and tools so that they can manage their own health and their own pain. And virtual reality is one of those, one of those tools that patients can use to manage their own pain uh, anxiety, et cetera. So again, we're, uh, we're really excited about this new technology. That is outstanding. Another exciting component that I know you've done some work on with the medical staff is uh, approaching pain, particularly acute post-surgical pain, as more as a functional, Correct. not a number on a scale one to 10. Because if you're in pain, it's 10 to you. And if your 10 is not my 10, uh, and so that, that really is becoming outdated. But I like to talk about how that addressing it more from a functional standpoint. Yeah. So I think sometimes there's a gap between what a provider is seeing. So if a nurse walks into a patient's room and a patient may say, you know, boy, my pain is 10 out of 10, but that might be up, moving around in the room and functioning well, there's kind of a disconnect there. But it could also be opposite. A patient might say, my pain is a two, but they're not able to ambulate in the room. They're not able to participate in some of the rehabilitation activities. So when we take out the subjectiveness, so the subjectivist meaning, when you use a one to 10 scale, a patient, one patient six is completely different from another patient six. But when we focus on function, what the patient can do, can they participate in uh, daily uh, activities of daily living? Are they able to, to get up and participate in therapies or activities? What are the things that they're actually able to do? If we can focus on function instead of the subjective piece, we can kind of cut out this disconnect that sometimes happens between providers and patients. Whereas a patient says, you know, my pain is not being controlled. And the provider says, well, I don't, I don't see, you don't appear to be in pain. Again, everybody's pain experience. Absolutely. Everybody's pain experience is very subjective. So I think using a, a functional pain scale, which is one of the tools that we're going to be using here at St. Luke's, helps put the provider and the patient on the same playing field and takes out some of that subjectiveness. And again, instead of focusing on pain reduction, which certainly can be helpful, we're focusing on patients getting better, being able to do more meaningful things, and increasing their function. If we're increasing function, we're oftentimes in increasing their quality of life. Yeah, and I think it makes the fundamental step from acknowledging pain is inevitable, yep. suffering, it, which is the functionality, is treatable. And you have your knee replaced, it's going to be painful, but you, you shouldn't be suffering and you should be able to function with therapy, et cetera. So I, I think good things are going to happen with that. How can a patient get referred to the pain psychology program? Is this just, do they need it? They obviously need primary, primary yeah. care physician to yep. make an appointment uh, through, through the, the, the services and through the referral center. Is this, has, do you see the program expanding? I, I really do. We're going to be you know, we're very grateful for the providers um, that have referred to our program, but we, we're realizing is that I think most providers really don't know what pain psychology is and what we're trying to accomplish. 
when we ask our patients what providers have talked to them about, they have some idea. So, you know, one of my goals for 2020 is to do more education with providers about what is pain psychology, what are the goals of the pain psychology program, how do we help patients, and how to get patients to our program. So, I'm actually in the process of finishing up a mini outcomes report that will send to all of our providers in the area with information about pain psychology. And then even also some additional information about how to talk to patients about pain and how to, to put in referrals to our program. Because again, as we've talked about, there is stigma associated with psychology. And um, I think if there's more, edu- again, more education about the type of services that we offer, again, we're not trying to take away patients' medications. Uh, you know, we're not going to question somebody's pain and say that it's all in their head. We want to help people have control over their pain and give them back function. So a lot of what we're going to be doing in 2020 is more education with providers. So I see our program growing. Yes, we have lots of room for growth. We just hired another uh, psychologist that's um, that's going to be helping with our pain psychology program because we think there's going to be more expansion. So we welcome patients. Um, And again, the patient has uh, any patient with pain-related concerns. And again, any type of pain condition we really try to get in probably patients that have had the chronic pain, which is pain that they've had for three or six months. In some situations, we have uh, had patients in our program with acute pain, but usually it was acute on chronic pain. So yeah, we would welcome more referrals. The best way to do it would be to, to talk with your primary care doctor. They can put in a health psychology referral, or they can call uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation uh, at 319 369 Three three one, and they can let one of our wonderful uh, receptionists uh, give them information. Our receptionist can provide information about what the next steps are and how to get them, uh, how to get them scheduled. Well, I, I think this is of tremendous value, uh, Doctor Tallman, uh, particularly because as a clinician, I, I can't put a cast on pain. I can't cut out pain. I can't. All I can really do is empathize with my patient and give them pain meds. Yep, and that is is not a sustainable model uh, for for addressing this. So I think this adds uh, another arrow in the quiver of uh, treating this complicated uh, condition. Absolutely. Uh, what got you thinking about pain psychology? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I was always interested in the healthcare field and the intersection between um, psychology and medicine. Psychology seemed to be a great fit uh, between how the mind and body work and operate. I did some work at the University of Iowa and their uh, spine center there and became really interested in understanding what are all the various factors that influence people's health and specifically with pain. Um, I think also pain, you know, the pain patient, uh, as they're oftentimes labeled, really it's a stigmatized population. And unfortunately, um, providers oftentimes don't want to work with, with these types of patients because of some of the challenges that they've experienced. So, you know, it's a, I think it's an underserved population. It's a population that I think is, um, is really looking for additional ways to be able to manage their pain. So it's very appealing to be able to help an underserved population, give them control, give them more skills and tools to be able to, to manage their pain. Um, also, I think there's lots of really really cool technologies right now and, and cutting edge evidence-based treatments to help manage pain. Things like biofeedback and use of technology like virtual reality. So 
for me, uh, I like to build programs and, and help people by using different types of technologies to manage their pain. And, um, you know, pain psychology seems to be a good area for me to be able to utilize those, those skills and uh, to help people, you know, manage their pain and, and live, live better lives. You know, we just, in Iowa, we, we have a significant shortage of mental health providers oh, yeah. across our state. And we have to come up with, you know, creative ways to be able to help patients manage their pain. Um, so, you know, the more we can, we can teach providers, we can teach patients to be able to take ownership and give them skills to be able to manage pain and other mental health issues, the better off the citizens, our citizens of Iowa are going to be in terms of taking responsibility and having the skills to be able to do so. Yeah, I, I lose an equally amount of sleep, uh, what I call the pill and the pendulum, where we've swung back, where we're potentially denying care to patients based upon the stigma of chronic opioid use, yeah. uh, which is, which that's always a concern. Uh, and sometimes the best intentions don't have the uh, present with uh, consequences that weren't thought of. And, and you know that as well as I do. This is really great information today. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this. Again, this was Dr. Benjamin Tallman, psychologist with St. Luke's Hospital Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.